Well, hey, my name is Josh Miller. I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church. I want to say uh, happy Mother's Day to everybody here today. My mom is actually in the crowd today, so that's a big deal, um, which is, which, yeah, a big clap for my mom, right? Um, yeah, other moms are here. And so grateful for uh, mothers and all the ways that you pour out your life. I've, I've never seen a clearer picture of the gospel than seeing my wife uh, mother our kids. My wife is actually not even here this morning because our youngest came down with something this weekend. And, you know, it's hard when you're married to the pastor because it's not like, all right, which of us should go? You know, like, do you want to, you know, it's just like, well, she's, she's at home. So, and so grateful for you mothers. If you're a guest with us here today, I want to give you a special shout out. We're really, really glad you're here. And I would love to meet you after the service and buy you a cup of coffee this week. Okay. So if you want free coffee, that is my bribe. Come and say hello. We'd love to get to know you better. Uh, hear some of your story and share a little about what we are about here at Center Church and different ways that you could get involved. So this morning, we're starting a new sermon series that we're going to be in for 12 weeks going through the entire summer. We're going to spend 12 weeks walking chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians, through the book of Ephesians, and I could not be more excited about this. The book of Ephesians, uh, many theologians refer to as Paul's masterpiece. Paul's masterpiece. In six chapters, you learn just about everything you need to know about the gospel, right? If it's really important, Paul touches on it at least a little bit in the six chapters of this letter. It's really beautifully divided. So chapters one through three are all about who God is and what he has done for us in the gospel. And chapters four through six are really, really practical. They touch on everything from marriage to parenting to conflict resolution to work, Right? So it's a, it's a beautiful book, it's a practical book, but first and foremost, it was a letter from the Apostle Paul written to a group of people who lived in a city where it was very hard to be a Christian, where it was very, very hard to be a Christian. You see, the city of Ephesus, where this church was located, was one of the most impressive and intimidating churches or intimidating cities in the ancient world. It was cosmopolitan and multicultural. It was located on an important harbor on the Mediterranean Sea that led to all of modern-day Turkey. So anything that was getting into modern-day Turkey had to go through Ephesus. It was home to the largest library in the ancient world and one of the largest libraries in history. And so most of the most prestigious scholars of the day lived and studied in Ephesus. It was also a religious smorgasbord, okay? It was home to more than 50 different temples including the temple of Artemis, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And sexual immorality was a literal industry in Ephesus. So needless to say, it was not an easy place to be a Christian. And that is what I think makes the book of Ephesians so timely and relevant for us today. Because for some of us, we live in environments that it's not easy to be a follower of Christ whether that's just generally in our culture that seems to believe a lot of things that are contrary to the Bible, or that is for you at work or in school or maybe in your family. You see, this letter from Paul to the Ephesians is not just about how to make it in a hard city, but it's about how to thrive there. It's not just about surviving in hard environments, but it's about thriving in your faith in hard environments. So I think this series is going to be extremely helpful for us, and I think you're going to walk away feeling edified and feeling better equipped to follow Jesus in wherever you find yourselves. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up or turn it on to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're just going to start right in verse 1, and we're going to march our way through this thing, okay? So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, 
to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 1 and 2 introduces to Paul as the writer of the letter and to the Ephesian church as the recipient, so believers who lived in the city of Ephesus. And we actually know a good deal about the church in Ephesus from other places in the Bible. So it was planted by Paul in Acts chapter 19 with movie-like drama, okay? Movie-like drama. Paul comes into this massive cosmopolitan city with all these temples and, and all these scholars and all this sexual immorality, and he starts preaching the gospel, and sure enough, people start to get saved. People start to get saved. People are turning from their cult practices to the living God. At one point, so many people who had formerly practiced magical arts became Christians that they brought their spell books into the street and they set them all on fire. And these spell books were really valuable. Modern scholars tell us it was about $6 million worth of material that, that they burned saying, hey, this is no longer who we are. We are no longer serving darkness, but we are now serving King Jesus. Right? There is like a revival that broke out. The power of the Holy Spirit was so present that Paul's handkerchiefs were healing people. And it's crazy. Literally, Paul would pull out his handkerchief, like wipe his head, hand it to somebody. They'd walk it over to this guy, lay it on him, and he'd be healed. Like that is how present the power of God was in Paul. In fact, things were so dramatic that the economy of this great city was disrupted. So the Temple of Artemis was this huge tourist attraction. People from all over the world would come there, and they would buy these little silver idols of Artemis. So there was a big industry, right? It's like living in Orlando or something, all right? You're selling Mickey Mouse stuff, right? You're selling temple, you know, idols of Artemis. Well, people stopped doing it. People stopped buying these little idols, and that really disrupted the economy to the point that the silversmiths, like the silversmiths got together and said, we've got to get Paul out of here or we're all going to go out of business. And so eventually Paul is driven out of the city by his enemies, but not before a major revival has broken out in this city. And even after Paul is driven out, the Ephesian church is led by an incredible leadership team. Timothy, who is Paul's protege, who the, the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy later in the Bible are written to, became the teaching pastor. If you get a book named after you in the Bible, you're a big deal, okay? So, so Timothy becomes the teaching pastor, and we have it from pretty good authority in early church history that the apostle John, like Jesus' best earthly friend, became one of the elders of Ephesus. How would you like to have that church staff team, right? Like, I think Justin does a pretty good job, but I think I'd take the Apostle John, right? <laughs> You're like, I'd take him over you too, Josh. Uh, I would too, right? I mean, this is an incredible staff team. But here's what's interesting. By the time the book of Ephesians is written, this letter is written, things had changed a lot. You see, Paul was no longer traveling around planting churches, but Paul had been imprisoned in Rome. And the revival had sort of died down in Ephesus and things had returned to normal life. The great cosmopolitan city kept rolling along with very little knowledge of the Christian movement. You see, this letter is written after the hype of conversion has worn off and the reality of day-to-day -day discipleship has set in. And this is what's fascinating to me. Knowing that, Paul did not say to the Ephesian church, seek the miraculous power that was at work in me when I first came there. He didn't say, hey, seek some crazy outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He also didn't say, hey, it'll be okay, guys. Trust in your competent leadership team. You've got Timothy. You've got John. You're going to be fine. No, what Paul did was Paul brought the Ephesians back to one of the most precious and most consistent truths of all of the scriptures, and it's this. If you are in Christ, 
it is because God chose you. If you are in Christ, it is because God chose you. You see, Paul understood that the greatest foundation that a Christian could have in a difficult and challenging environment was not a new technique. It wasn't a great pastor. It was the reality and the truth that the God of all creation chose you for his family. And because he chose you, he is going to sustain you and bring you until the end. That is what Paul wants us to see. Look at verses three through four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In the Greek text, verse three starts one long run-on sentence that goes for 202 words. From verse three to verse 14 is one long sentence, and all the English teachers cringed, okay? One long run-on sentence. Paul was an extremely well-educated man. He could write with beautiful prose. So why did he write such a poorly constructed sentence? It's because in this moment, Paul was not thinking about his grammar. He was worshiping God. He was overflowing in praise and admiration for God. You see that in verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Praise be God. Glorify his name. You see, Paul started this letter with an extended doxology. A doxology just means a praise of God, a praising of his character and of his actions in the past. So what had God done? What was Paul so overwhelmed with that God had done? Verse 4, God chose us in Christ. God chose us in Christ. God chose to adopt people into his family and to change them from sinners into saints. He did it in the life of Paul. Paul had been one of the greatest persecutors of the church. He had gone by the name of Saul, and he dragged people out of church services and threw them in jail. And in a moment, God changed his life and turned him from Saul, the persecutor of the church, into Paul, the great missionary of the church. He had done it in the Ephesian believers. Many of the people who made up this church had previously been practicing dark magic. They had been worshiping in the temples of false gods. They had been participating in cult prostitution. And yet God reached down and he saved them. And if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, no matter what your story is, God did the same thing. He reached down and he saved you and he changed your name and he gave you an inheritance and he washed away your sins and he made you a saint when before you were a sinner. Paul says, hey, if you find it difficult to follow Jesus at work or at school or in your family or in the culture that you find yourself in, remember this overarching truth, God chose you. God chose you. That is the dominant theme of the 14 verses we're going to look at. Consider this, there are 48 pronouns in this text, 30 of them refer to God. 30 of them refer to God. Of the 24 verbs or action sequences in this text, 20 of them are carried out by God. Paul's big point is that God chose you, and he chose you before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, which means before you attended church, before you prayed, before you volunteered, before you did anything good or bad, God saw you and he placed his loving care upon you and he chose you for his family. We all feel a deep desire to be wanted, don't we? 
Maybe you remember applying for colleges. You remember this? And you go out to the mailbox, and you're like, oh, I hope I got the fat envelope. You know, the one with the orientation information in it. They probably don't even do that anymore. They probably just send email, right? But that's how old I am. All right? You, you just hope you got the fat one that says, hey, welcome. We want you. You're good enough. Become a, a member of our institution. And, man, your heart sank if you saw the little skinny envelope, right? That was like, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I remember uh, my seventh grade basketball team, my parents can attest to this, right? My seventh grade basketball, I got cut from my seventh grade basketball team, which let's just be honest, middle school basketball is not a huge deal, okay? But like in the moment, it felt like it. Like I was devastated that this seventh grade basketball coach didn't want me on his team, right? I think we can all resonate with this deep desire to be wanted. I was reading a book with my kids this week called Corduroy. Anybody remember that book, Corduroy? You guys, yeah, we've got some folks in the house. And it's this, it's this really heartwarming but kind of heartbreaking story of this little bear who wants to get, he wants to get chosen by a kid in a toy store. But he's, he's on the shelf for ages, and other toys come and go, and kids come by, and they look at him, they don't take him. And he realizes one day that one of his buttons has fallen off. And he thinks this must be the problem. The problem must be that I'm not good enough because my button has fallen off. So if I just get my button on, then someone will love me and someone will want me in their family. And so most of the book is him exploring around the shopping center trying to find his button. Because he just thinks if I could just get a button, then a, a child would actually want me and I'd be worthy of love. Right? I just, I just read that this week and almost, I was like getting emotional. And I just, I have kids are like, what's wrong with you, you know? Um, my three-year-old's like, it's going to be okay, Dad, you know? Um, but, but I just feel like, man, that, that's just so many of our stories, isn't it? Like, we're court, like, we just want somebody to say we're good enough, and we just want to feel like we're valuable, and we want to feel like we're worthy of love, and it doesn't happen, or it doesn't happen like we wish we, it would, and so what do we do? We think it must be that I don't have enough buttons. Like, if I just go out and find my button, if I just can go out and make the team, or I can lose 10 pounds, or I can get the promotion at work, then I will be worthy, and then someone will love me, and then someone will choose me and tell me that I'm good enough. And what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is you don't have to do that. The person who matters more than anyone else in all of creation looked at you without your button and said, I want you. I want you on my team. I want you in my family. I want you in my house. I love you with all of your faults and with all of your flaws and with all of your problems. Paul says, God chose you. He said, don't miss that. God Almighty chose you. You see, this mattered so much to Paul that he spends all 14 verses just sort of fleshing it out. And here's what he does. He kind of takes this, this truth that God chose you, which is what theologians call the doctrine of election, okay, big word, the doctrine of election, that God chose you before the foundation of the earth, and God takes it, and Paul took it like a diamond, and he holds it up to the light like this. You know how if you take a diamond and you hold it up to the light, you see different aspects of it, that the light will reflect off of different faces of the diamond? And it's, a, it's the same diamond, but you're just sort of seeing different parts of it. It's beautiful. Well, that's what Paul is going to do in these verses for us. He's going to pick up the doctrine of election like a diamond. He's going to hold it up. And he's going to say, hey, I want you to see three different aspects of this. Because understanding this concept that if you are in Christ, God chose you, will empower you to thrive no matter how difficult your environment is. Here's the first thing that Paul wants us to see. Point number one, God chose you for adoption. God chose you for adoption. In Christ, you were chosen for adoption. Look at verse five with me. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 
I'll say that again. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to work through the three kind of dominant phrases of that one at a time. In love, you were predestined to be adopted as sons. So first, in love. In love refers to the motivation with which God carried out what he did. He loved you, and as a result, he chose you. Now, there's a couple of different things that might motivate you to act, right? Sometimes we do things out of need, right? You might say, hey, I need, I need to get some food because I'm hungry, so your motivation is I need food. Sometimes you're just bored, and you might do something out of entertainment. Like, I don't have anything else to do tonight, so I'm going to watch a Netflix show. It's not that I love this show in particular. I just, I'm bored, and I need to be entertained. But what this scripture is telling us is that when God looked at you, it wasn't that he needed anything. It wasn't that he was bored. It's that in love, he chose you. Maybe you've done this before. Maybe you paid $35 for a UVA national championship t-shirt, right? Because how expensive are those t-shirts, right? Because you love UVA basketball. And so you paid all that money to do it. Maybe you're a parent, and instead of going on vacations, in love, you're taking that money and putting it in a college fund for your child. Because you love them. You want to see good happen to them. What the scripture tells us is that God's motivation in choosing us was love. Here's the next phrase. You were predestined. You were predestined. So sometimes the word predestination trips people up, which I totally understand. So I'm just going to kind of work through it a little bit, and I think the better you understand it, it's actually going to be really comforting for you, okay? So predestination. All right, think of it in terms of its parts. Destination. Do you think God has a destination for your life? I do. Right? If, you, if you read the Bible, it says that the Bible teaches that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That God knows all of the hairs on your head and all of the days of your life. That God has put you in this place at this time for a purpose and a reason, and he has a glorious reason for you being here. He wants you to take part in his mission here in Charlottesville. God has a destination for your life. So if that's true, wouldn't it follow that God thought about it beforehand? Like, do you think God's just sort of winging it as he goes, right? Like, oh no, she was supposed to go to Virginia Tech, but she went to UVA. Oh gosh, she was going to meet Mark at Virginia Tech, and then they were going to get together, and they were going to have Martha and Sarah and Kyle, but now she's never going to meet Mark. Okay, who else is available? John from high school? All right, it's going to be John, you know, like, no, like, that would be a terrifying way to live, wouldn't it? Like, There'd be so much weight on every decision. But what this text says is, hey, God has been working from before the foundation of the earth. He's been working out a plan in your life. And honestly, sometimes we can see this really clearly in the rearview mirror, can't we? Does this ever happen to you? you? You look back on your last year and you think, wow, this makes so much sense now. You ever have one of those moments? It didn't make sense at the time. Maybe what you were going through was hard or you, you didn't get into a school or you didn't get a job or whatever. And you thought like, man, this is devastating. And yet a year down the road, you think, man, God was orchestrating the whole thing. There's all, there's all these things down here that I didn't know were going to happen that God did. Right? God has worked on your destination beforehand in love. And if you've ever struggled with fear or anxiety like I have, this should be extraordinarily comforting to you. Because when your life seems out of control, it means that it's not. It means that it is under God's control. Think of it like a tapestry. You know what a tapestry is? It's a, man, it's a, it's a big woven piece of art where you take a bunch of different colored thread and you weave it together to make a, an image. And 
Art museums around the world collect tapestries to display. And the front of a tapestry is beautiful. It's intricate, it's detailed, it's glorious. People come from all around to look and to gaze at a tapestry. But if you look at the back of a tapestry, it's a total mess. Because that's where all the string is being knotted off and cut and it's frayed and it doesn't make any sense. You see, a lot of times we perceive our lives like the back of a tapestry. The things that happen don't seem to make any sense. It seems out of control. Our life seems like a mess. But here's what this doctrine teaches you. God is knitting together a beautiful piece of art. You just can't see it yet. You see, one day when you get to heaven, God is going to say, hey, come around to this side, and you're going to see the beautiful piece of art that he was weaving together in your life. You're going to get to see the other side of the tapestry. You see, if you believe that at a heart level, it really takes the teeth out of anxiety and worry. And it also protects you from decision paralysis. Do you know what decision paralysis is? It's me at Chipotle, okay? It's like, I, black beans or pinto, but I don't know, you know, like, you ever try to order at Chipotle with a group, but you have to, like, the text message is like this long, you know? Right, because we just have so, there's so many options for modern people that it can be sort of paralyzing, especially if you're a college student and you're like, well, I could be a doctor, I could be a lawyer, I could be, you know, uh, an astronaut, I could start a new company. Like, it's just, it's paralyzing. Here's what I love about this doctrine. You can apply biblical wisdom and then make decisions without fear. One of my favorite verses, I shared this with some folks earlier today. It's Proverbs 16.9. It says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What that means is learn biblical wisdom, get, get good advice from, from your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then make decisions, and don't worry about it. Because the Lord is directing you. The Lord is directing your path by his sovereignty. At a deep heart level, trust in this doctrine of predestination will reduce anxiety and fear in your life. Gosh, especially if you're a parent, how easy it is to just stress about your kids. I feel this, like, are they developing along the right pathway? Do they have the right friends? Are they going to the right schools? You know, are they going to make it into the, you know, ah, oh, but it's like God is saying, hey, I got it. You do the best job you can as a parent and trust me with your kids. Man, it is so incredibly comforting. But I know that the, the doctrine of predestination also brings up some really good questions, right? So, so two that came to my mind, what about free will, right? Like, what about our ability to make decisions? Um, and then also, does that mean if God chose some people, does that mean he didn't choose other people, okay? And those are really good questions, and I'm going to talk about them in just a second. But one of the things I've learned that's been really helpful for me in this kind of uh, area is that the Bible doesn't answer every single question that I have. In fact, it, it doesn't answer a lot of them. A lot of times what the Bible does is it tells me, it gives me revelation of what God's will is for my life that I might obey it, but it doesn't answer all the speculative questions that I have. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it this way. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. So there's a distinction between the secret things and the revealed things. And what Moses, the author of this text, is saying is that our job is to obey the revealed things rather than to figure out all the things that are hidden. Now, the fact that some things are hidden can be very frustrating, especially for theologians who try to figure it all out. <laughs> right? But what Moses is saying is, and remember, you're, you're talking about God, who is infinitely wiser than any of us. 
So recently I had a conversation with Brent Perdue, who's in my community group. And Brent has a PhD in nuclear physics. And so I said, hey, Brent, explain nuclear physics to me. Right? Let's just see who I am. And so he spent 45 minutes giving it a really good effort, okay? He was like using analogies and illustrations. And at the end of 45 minutes, I'll be honest with you, I had zero comprehension of nuclear physics. I, it just wasn't, I, was, I didn't have enough mental capacity to track with him. Right? It wasn't that nuclear physics were untrue. It's just that I couldn't understand it. So let's assume that Brent in that area is 50% smarter than me. And because there was this gap, so here's Brent and here's me, I couldn't understand what he understood up here. Now, it didn't make nuclear physics untrue, like my microwave still works, right? It's just that I couldn't comprehend it. You following that? Now, how much smarter must God be than me? I mean, certainly more than 50%, right? I mean, than all of us, even the smartest. I mean, it must be just infinitely wiser. So doesn't it follow that there would be some things that from our perspective seem not to make sense and don't seem to go together, but if we had the perfect wisdom of Almighty God, that, that they would? Does that make sense? So I, I want to give you a couple, couple things that have been helpful for me with these questions, but just recognize that sometimes you're going to have to hold together two things that Scripture teaches that from our perspective don't seem to quite fit together, but one day, maybe in heaven, God will help us understand how they fit together. Just like maybe one day I'll understand nuclear physics, okay? So uh, the first question, what about free will? So does, does predestination, does God's kind of sovereignty over our lives flatten our ability and responsibility to make choices? I think that's kind of the teeth of that question. And if you study the Bible, the answer has to be not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. Jesus consistently called people to exercise their personal decision-making, as they listen to him. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon that he ever preached, he called his audience to act. He said, judge not, ask and it will be given to you. What you wish others would do to you, do to them. Enter by the narrow gate. So somehow God's predestination and our ability and responsibility to make choices don't quench each other. Again, I don't know exactly how that all works out in the same way I don't understand nuclear physics, but scripture teaches both of those things. So here's the next question. Does predestination mean that God doesn't choose some people, right? That there's some people that God does choose and can be saved, and there's other people that God doesn't choose. And it's important um, to, at the beginning of this question to remember that God isn't obligated to offer salvation to anyone. In fact, according to the scriptures, what would be fair, it would be if God just let us all die condemned for rejecting him. But that in grace, God does extend salvation. And I had a seminary professor that explained this using an illustration that was really helpful for me. He said, um, too often we think of it like this. Man, everyone around the world is like, God, let me in, let me in. And God's like, not you and not you, but you can come, right? And that's kind of like, oh, man, like that feels very, like, man, God seems like the bad guy. The professor said, but the biblical story is actually very opposite. The biblical story is that the moment that we were born, we took off sprinting towards hell through sin rejecting God, being apathetic towards him. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm running as fast as I can towards hell. And that the doctrine of election is that God came sprinting after us, grabbed us by the shoulder, and dragged us kicking and screaming into salvation. And my professor said, if you understand it that way, you ask the question with a different tone. It doesn't, it's still a hard question. I'm not saying it's not, but you just think about it differently, okay? It's also worth noting that Scripture never presents, not one time, someone's lack of choosing God because God didn't choose them. In fact, every single time, it's, it's positioned this way. God is willing that they should come, but they refuse to come. 
give you a couple verses here. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. And the Bible actually ends, this is one of the last verses in the Bible, in Revelation 22, 17, says this, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So here's what that means. If you are a Christian, it is because God chose you. It's because God chose you. It's not because you chose him. It's because God chose you, and it was his love for you that created love in you for him. And if you're not yet a Christian, the Bible says it's because you have chosen to reject God. And that grieves God's heart. And he's not willing that you should perish, but that he is desirous that you should repent and believe in Jesus and become one of his chosen people. So I'm sure that doesn't answer all of your questions about predestination, but I hope that's just kind of helpful with some of the main questions, okay? In love, God predestined us before the foundation of the world for what? Let her see. For adoption as sons. For adoption as sons. Okay. This is an amazing truth. This is one of the most precious truths of all of Scripture. The creator of the universe, our holy God, predestined to adopt you into his family. Into his family. And adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because think about it. Orphans don't pick parents. Right? Parents pick orphans. And parents cover the entire cost of the adoption, right? Orphans don't pay for any of it. And adoptions are expensive. And not only just financially expensive, but they, are, they, they require emotional investment. They require the, the adoptive family to reorient their lives around the new family member. But the adopted parents do it in joy. If you've ever talked to a family who was adopted, they would say, we feel so blessed to get to be a part of this child's life. And what the scriptures say is that that is how it is with God. He saw you in the orphanage of sin. He saw you without a family, without a name, without a home. And love moved him to pay the entire price of your adoption. You and I were out on the streets of the world without a home, and God brought us in. But here's the thing. He didn't just bring us in as a servant. He didn't say, hey, kid, you can have a job so that you can, you know, earn a living and, and hopefully not end up in jail. He said, no, I'm going to take you off of the streets and I'm going to clothe you with new clothing. I'm going to put the family ring on your finger and I'm going to sit you at the head of the table. It's beautiful. Paul says adoption is sons. And you might think like, why doesn't he say sons and daughters? That's weird. It's because son was the highest place of honor in ancient, in ancient culture. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how it was. And what Paul is teaching is that God did not adopt you as a niece or a nephew. He adopted you as a son. He adopted you as the highest position of intimacy and authority that you can possibly possess. And this has unbelievable implications for your relationship with him. Because if you are a son of the Most High God, you don't have to go through a priest or a pastor or some long list of incantations to talk to him. Think about it with a senator. If you were trying to get a phone call with a senator, it would be very difficult for you, unless you were that senator's child, right? And then you just text them. Or you'd call them six times. They'd come out of Senate. What? What do you need? You know, like, 
My kids do that, right? They just, they, it doesn't matter. If you are a son, you have utter access because you know the love of your father. That is what Paul is saying. Hey, Ephesians, hey, center church, realize you weren't just forgiven of your sins so you could sort of be like out there hoping that God is well inclined towards you. You were brought into the family as a son. And if you reflect on that, if you really believe that at a heart level, it will radically change how you live in this world. Think of it this way. Uh, when UVA was in the national championship game, imagine you had snuck into the locker room at halftime. If you did that, you would be anxious the entire time, right? You'd be like, I hope nobody sees me. I hope nobody kicks me out. I could get in a lot of trouble for this, right? Unless you were Tony Bennett's child. Because then it's like, my dad is the guy in charge. So I'm going to be all up in this locker room if I want to. All right, nobody's going to kick me out. If they do kick me out, they're going to have somebody to answer to, right? The doctrine of election says, hey, your dad is the ultimate man in charge. So if your boss ostracizes you for your faith, if your coworkers exclude you, if your family members think that you're fanatic, it's okay. It's sad. I'm not glad that's happened. But and the, the real boss, the best friend, the ultimate family member, loves you and chose you and adopted you into his family. Paul wants you to remember that. He says, hey, lift up your head. Lift up your head, Ephesians. Lift up your head, Center Church. The one who really matters adopted you. That's point number one. Here's point number two. In Christ, you were chosen for redemption. In Christ, you were chosen for redemption. Verses seven and eight say this. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In the ancient world, the word redemption had to do with the slave market, okay? So slavery in Rome was different than the slavery that most of us are familiar with. So what we're familiar with is what's called chattel slavery, where someone was forcibly taken out of their country and they were enslaved forever. They were a slave. They couldn't stop being a slave. Their children were slaves. The most brutal form of slavery. Slavery in the ancient, in the ancient world was still brutal, but it was different. It was mostly debt slavery. So what that meant is someone incurred a debt that they couldn't repay, and so they were sold as a slave to the one that they owed the money to. And what it meant to redeem a slave was that you would go down to the slave market, and he was the owner of your loved one. And, and the, the slave owed that owner a, a large sum of money, and you would say, I love my brother or my sister, so I'm going to redeem them from you with this cost. And so you would pay the slave owner, you would say, here's the money, and you would redeem that slave, and they would be set free from their slavery. They would, they would no longer be owned by that master, but they would be a free man or a free woman once again. That's what it meant to redeem. That's literally what the word meant in Greek. So what this means is that you and I, the Bible says, were slaves to sin, that we were mastered by sin, that we owed a great debt. And what God did was he came to the slave market and he redeemed you. The question is, what did God have to pay to redeem you? How much did it cost him? The ultimate price. It cost him the blood of his precious son. That was the price of our redemption. Verse 7 says that in Christ we have been purchased out of slavery by his blood. Sin no longer has mastery over you if you are in Christ. You don't have to do what sin calls you to do. It is no longer your master. You now belong to the Lord Almighty. And the value of something, if you think about it, the value of something is based off of what you're willing to pay for it, right? 
So you're willing to pay maybe $15,000 for a car, $300,000 for a house, or if in Charlottesville, $900,000, you know? And any price for a medical procedure that would save your child, right? Because the value of your child is so much greater than the value of a, of a house, and the value of, you know, you value your house much more than you value your car. So the question is, what are we worth to God? What are you worth to God? With all your problems, all your lost buttons, what are you worth to God? And the answer of the scriptures is you are of infinite worth. Because God was willing to pay the ultimate price to redeem you. He was willing to give the precious blood of his one and only son. And God paid that price knowing exactly what he was getting. Look at verse 8. It says that he did all of this in all wisdom and insight. So that means that God knew all of your qualities when he decided to buy you. All of them. He knew all the good qualities and he knew all the bad qualities. And here's why that's really good news for you. It means that God can never be disappointed with you. God can never be disappointed with you. Can, I don't know who it is today. So one, someone here just needs to like own that. God's not disappointed. He's not your dad that was always disappointed. He's not your coach that was always disappointed or your teacher that always wanted more. He's not. Do you know why? Do you know why we get disappointed with people or things? Because they don't live up to what we thought they were going to be, right? So, oh man, I thought that movie was going to be funnier or I thought this job was going to be a lot more interesting, right? So we have this expectation and then it comes in below it and so we feel that sense of disappointment. That never happens with God. Because he knew exactly who you were. He knew exactly all your good and all your bad when he purchased you. You see, the truth of Scripture is that you can disappoint other people. You can even disappoint yourself, but you can never disappoint God. That's how secure your relationship is with your Father if you are in Christ. You see, understanding that you were chosen for redemption should produce two things within you, two things in your character. Number one, profound humility, and number two, godly confidence. Profound humility and godly confidence. How so? Those kind of seem like opposite things. Well, profound humility because you reflect on the fact that you were sold under slavery to sin. And you couldn't free yourself. And anything that you now have, any ability that you have to glorify the Lord is only because he bought you out of slavery. For those of us who struggle with having uh, too much self-esteem, as you might say, like we're too aware of how much of a snowflake we are, like this is good for us. This is good for us to kind of dwell on these things, right? That, man, all I am, all I do is a gift of God. If, if you struggle with pride, it would be good for you to reflect on this and let it kind of soak within you and create humility in you. On the other hand, it should create godly confidence, right? For, for some of us, the problem is low self-esteem. You beat yourself up all the time. You think, I never do anything right. God could never work through me. I'm such a wreck. But what, what this doctrine teaches is that, no, God paid the ultimate price for you. The, the person with the most perfect judgment in all the world looked at you and said, I want her. I want him, and I'm willing to pay the ultimate price to get you. Reflecting on that should create in you godly confidence and self-esteem. That, man, if, if God Almighty loves me, if God Almighty purchased me for that price, then, man, I must be worth something. You see, if you reflect on those two things, you won't be puffed up with pride when you're successful, and you also won't be crushed with failure. Because in both realities, you'll know, man, God Almighty, God Almighty redeemed me. He bought me back from sin and brought me into his family. 
That's the second thing Paul wants you to see. Here's the third thing. In Christ, you were chosen to give God glory. In Christ, you were chosen to give God glory. Verses 6 and then 11 through 14. Here, I'll read 11 and 12. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ, this is important, might be to the praise of his glory. So in verse 11, Paul starts reflecting on his own salvation. In him we, right, so he's including himself. And then he moves on to answer a very important question in verse 12. Why did God save me? Why did God save me? You see that word so in verse 12? You see that? So that, that, that is a, a statement of reason, right? Why did God save me? Why did he give me this inheritance? And the answer is to the praise of his glory. God saved Paul and he saved the other early Christians. That's what Paul's referring to, the, the first that first to hope in Christ. So think Paul, the early disciples, Timothy, all those folks. Paul says that God saved this group. Paul say, God saved us for his own glory. And Paul said the same thing back in verse 6. He said, in love he predestined us for adoption to the praise of his glorious grace. And then Paul's going to say it again in verse 14. So Paul really wants us to understand this. So what does he want us to understand? He wants us to understand that God saved you to glorify himself. Okay? God saved you to glorify himself. God's ultimate aim, his ultimate aim in all that he does is his own glory. Now, our good gets wrapped up in that most times. So that what God is doing for his glory is also for our good. It's certainly the case in salvation. We get saved and it's to his glory. But it's really important to understand that God did not primarily save you for your sake, but for his sake. Okay? The more you understand that, the more the Bible is going to start to make sense to you. And the more honestly that some of the circumstances of your life will make sense to you. God does what he does to glorify himself. And we see this all throughout scripture. Ezekiel 36 says this, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Psalm 23, 1 through 3, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, when you grasp that everything that God does is for his own glory, the Bible starts to make sense and some of the hard circumstances in, in your life start to make sense. Because here's the truth. You might want to write this down. God's primary purpose isn't to make our lives as comfortable as possible, but to glorify himself by making us as holy as possible. Let me say that again. God's primary purpose isn't to make our lives as comfortable as possible, but to glorify himself by making us as holy as possible. And an objection that might come to your mind, a fair objection, is isn't it conceded for God to be for his own glory? Right? Isn't that, wouldn't that be kind of immoral of God? Because that's what we think of people, right, that do things only for themselves, right, that think only about themselves and are always working for their own ends. We think that they're conceded. Well, the Bible's answer is that God is justified in seeking his own glory because he is the most glorious thing that there is. So think of it this way. We consider people conceited when they overestimate how important they are, right? Like we consider people conceited when they want too much attention on themselves that is beyond what they deserve. 
But we don't consider people conceited when they desire an appropriate amount of attention. So two examples that came to mind. You don't consider a bride conceited when she walks down the aisle and everyone stands and looks at her. No. Because you'd say, no, this is an appropriate moment. This is your moment. You deserve this attention. You deserve this glory. You don't think she's conceited. You don't think a professor is conceited when she stands down at the front of an auditorium and teaches. Why? Because you think you have the academic criteria. You have the wisdom and knowledge. You should be teaching. You should teach the students and they should learn from you. No one should critique a professor for doing that. You see, the Bible would say the same thing. Because God is ultimately beautiful, ultimately worthy, ultimately holy, he is worthy of all praise and glory. And in fact, if he were to seek anything else, he would be in the wrong. Because he would be seeking to give glory to something that it's not worthy of. Now, this can be really hard for us to get our minds around. And I think one of the reasons is that one of the big impacts that sin has had on us as people is that we tend to think of the world as revolving around us. And this is really hard in our culture because our culture in a lot of ways is built on that idea. Like, think about your iPhone. iPhones are amazing. They will literally do almost anything you want them to do just by speaking to them. And what we don't realize is this sort of reinforces this idea that, like, the world, the world should revolve around us and what we want. But, you see, that's not, that's not true. The Bible would say, no, actually, you're not designed to be the center of the universe. God is. And even our salvation, if you were in Christ, was pursued in a way that glorified God and not you. You ever thought about that? When you really understand that, that you and I were dead in our sin and God in his grace brought us back to life, there's not a lot about that that glorifies me, right? It's not like I worked really hard and, you know, cleaned my act up and pulled myself up by my bootstraps and then God, you know, let me in because I had a great resume. It's no, I didn't have any resume. I had a bad resume, but God said, I'm gracious, I'm good, I'm merciful, I'm bringing you in. Now, here's what's wonderful. God's glory and your good go hand in hand. It's, it's hard to stomach at first, but the more that you orient your life around him and less around yourself, the more joy and satisfaction flows into your life. Ask any saint that's been, in, that's been following Jesus for a long time, and they'll tell you this. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says this. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you know what it means to be at the right hand of God? It means to be in a position of service. You see, the king sat on the throne, and and the man that was to his right, the woman that was to his right, carried out his wishes. That's where we get the phrase right-hand man. So what David is saying in Psalm 1611 is, hey, God, the joy that I long for and the satisfaction and peace that my heart desires are found not in me being on the throne, but in me being at the right hand of the throne, serving God. I think of it a little bit like I think of our solar system. So our solar system thrives because the sun is at the center and it gives energy and life to the rest of the solar system. When God is at the center of your life, your life will thrive. But if if you try to put yourself at the center of the solar system, it gets all out of whack. So Paul says, God saved me and gave me an inheritance for the sake of his own glory. And then he goes on in verse 13 to say this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In him you also. So this good news of grace, this good news of adoption, is not just for Paul and Timothy and all the super early Christians, but it was also for the Ephesians who had been practicing dark magic and who had been living in sexual immorality and had been neglecting God. And it's also for Center Church. 
It's also for you and me. It's also for you if you have been apathetic towards God, if you have not read your Bible in three weeks, if you haven't ever had a quiet time, if this is your first time in church in months, if you feel like all you do is make resolutions and then fail, if you were, man, downtown last night and you woke up, man, smelling of alcohol, if you are living with your boyfriend, whatever it is, Paul says, hey, this is also for you. The inheritance of Christ, eternal life, and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is God's free gift to every single person that he chooses. So the question becomes, how do you get chosen? (laughs) How do you get chosen? And that's what Paul says in verse 13 and 14. He says, hey, this is all it is. When you hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit will open your eyes and things will start to make sense to you. And this might be happening to some of you right now. You might be in a season of this. All of a sudden, for the first time in your life, the Bible might, the Bible might start be making sense. And the gospel might be clicking a little bit. You might be saying, man, I, I do want God to be my father. I do feel this longing to be chosen. I, I want to be cleansed of my sin. I, I want to, man, I've tried living as the center of my life and it's not working. And the Holy Spirit is working in you and he's bringing understanding for the first time and some things are starting to click. And verse 13 tells us that your part in this process, my part in this process, is simply to believe in Christ. You see that in verse 13? And believed in him. And the Greek word for believe there is the word pistuo. And pistuo is a word that means to really, it's more like believe or to trust in, to lean your weight upon Christ. So it means you hear this gospel that I'm proclaiming, and you start to believe it and to trust in it, and you start to say, yes, that's true. Jesus lived a perfect life for me. Then he died for my sins on the cross, and then he was resurrected from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God. And you say, I'm starting to believe that, and I'm starting to lean my trust into that, even though I still have doubts and I still have unanswered questions. I'm choosing to place the weight of my soul onto that truth. I think of it a lot like I think of this Think of this stool. So I think there's kind of three stages in becoming a Christian. I think there's one stage where we're over here and we don't even, we don't know anything about God or about Jesus, right? Sort of like, I don't know, I don't even know there's a stool there. And then there's a distinct phase where we become aware of spiritual things. And this might be where some of you are. You, you've come to church, maybe you've come, grown up in church, or maybe this is the first time you're starting to hear these things and you're trying to figure out Man, what do I think about this? And you, you might even believe in God generally, believe in the Bible, believe that Jesus did what he said he did. But here's the thing. You, you believe that there's a stool there, but you haven't placed your weight on it yet. Does that make sense? You see, for many of us, I spent a long time doing this. I believed, I believed it was there, but I hadn't leaned the weight of my life onto the stool. But see, the Greek word pistuo, what Paul is saying is no, to actually To actually be saved, you believe in Christ. You don't just believe that Christ came, but you believe in Christ that he came for you. And here's the thing. I know some things about this stool, right? Like, I know it's got four legs, and I know it's made out of wood, but I have no idea how it's held together. And and I, I I don't know what kind of varnish is used. I don't know where it was made. I just know that there's a stool. And here's the thing. When it comes to trusting in Christ, you have to say, look, I see this stool is here. I'm actually going to come and I'm going to put the entire weight of my life onto the stool. Here's the thing. I'm sitting on this stool and I still don't know how it, how it holds together. I don't know what kind of wood it is. There's a lot of things about this stool that I don't know, but what I do know is that it's holding me up. 
You see, for many of you, you might be here this morning, and you might believe that Jesus came, but you haven't yet believed in Jesus. You haven't leaned your life onto him. And what Paul would say today, and what I would say today is, you can do that today. If you want to be chosen of God, if you want to be a person with all the benefits that Paul talked about today, it's a simple repentance and faith, saying, God, I have been living as the Lord of my own life, and I want to stop. And I have a lot of questions, and I don't have all the answers, and my life is still uh, a mess, but I'm going to sit on the stool. I'm going to lean the entire weight of my life onto the work of your son. I'm going to ask you to help me. No matter where you're coming from, no matter what your story is, you can do that today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, the, the doctrine of election that you chose us man, is one of the most beautiful, profound, and comforting truths of all of Scripture for people like me that are in process. For the people in this room that man, have good qualities and bad qualities, we all have different stories, and yet you are inviting us to become a part of your family today. Father, I pray that the doctrine of of election would thrill the hearts of those in Christ this morning. That they would know that and they are loved, they are chosen, they are adopted, they are redeemed with all their flaws and with all their mistakes and that you are working in them for the sake of their holiness and your glory and that because that's true they can trust and they can get back up and they can be steadfast in the midst of a hard environment. Lord, and I pray for those here. I pray for those here that haven't yet leaned the weight of their life onto your son, that maybe they believe that Jesus came, but they haven't believed in Jesus. And I pray that they would. I pray that they would see you as a smiling, loving father who so loved the world that you sent your one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter their Bible knowledge. It doesn't matter their occupation. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is have they trusted you? Lord, give people faith today to believe that that really is available to them. That you really are looking at them and saying, I want you. I want you for my family. And I pray that you give people faith to pray and say, Father, I'm a sinner. Confess that. And I ask you to forgive me and give me new life in Christ. Lord, your word says that any of us that come to you in that posture, you will receive and you'll start a work of grace in our lives. We thank you so much for that. And I pray all of this in your son's name.